Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com. And in New York, we have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Bonjour, Katie. On the West Coast, we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Ooh la la, Katie. And dialing in from France with a glass of rosé by his hand, I've been told, we have our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Bonsoir, mes amis. You guys are just all trying to make fun of me for never having taken French, aren't you? I don't understand a word you're saying. I don't know. I went with ooh la la. I think that translates. (laughs) Ooh la la. Famous French phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So Richard, you have been kind enough to take a break from your yachts and beach dates uh, to dial us in from Cannes to let us know how that festival is going. It's just started as we're talking. I believe the the premiere screening was last night. Uh, So how are things going over there just in general? It's good. I mean, there had been some concern once the lineup was announced, um, you know, from certainly... American journalists about, you know, the kind of lack of, you know, English language films and star power in the main competition. Um, And so that's just kind of made people be a little bit like us, like a little bit more thinking on our feet, improvisatory about what should be covered and what the big stories are. But you know, as ever, the world intrudes and into this film festival. And so there's lots of talk about Me Too and Time's Up and Equal Pay and all that stuff, which was reflected in statements made during the opening night ceremony on Tuesday night and uh, already in some of the films. So it's off to an interesting start so far with a lot more to come. Yeah, I thought it was interesting of of the many stories that I've been seeing coming out of it when you start talking about what, you know, what the jurors are talking about. The Cape Blanchett answered some question about like, how do you balance can having high ideas with people wearing beautiful dresses and she was like you can be both attractive and smart at the same time it would seem like a great foot to start this kind of festival on it was and then uh julie miller has a piece on the site now about uh, the first film the opening night film starred husband and wife team penelope cruz and javier bardem it's the new oscar for hottie film and during the press conference the next morning after the premiere a journalist got up and asked if they were paid equally and they said yes and so you know these questions are already rising to the surface of the discourse here as they should be you know can while making some effort you know it's a 50 50 male female jury this year on the film side though it's still not very representative of female directors. So, you know, Cannes has work to do, but at least they're addressing it in a way similar to the way that we saw at Sundance. So how is the Oscar for Hardy film? You did see that one uh, at the, not the premiere, but the press screening, right? Well, yeah. So they're doing this weird thing now where at the premieres next door at the smaller theater, the press screening is happening simultaneously. This was an effort to curb the problem of Twitter kind of destroying a movie's buzz before it premieres that night because the press would see it in the morning. So we're now watching it at the same time as the world premiere audience, which meant that we had to sit through the whole long opening ceremony, which was something I was grumbling about. But yeah, the movie itself, which is this, um, it's Farhadi's first film not made through Iran, and there's no Iranian characters in it, Persian characters. Um, It's set in Spain. It's a family drama, sort of tiny little thriller elements, all about class and money and sort of male power and male ego, which are not unfamiliar themes for for Farhadi, even though the location is, the setting is different. Richard, you wrote in your preview that it was interesting that that's an opening night film because often the opening night film is a sort of a little less serious and high-powered at Cannes. And Farhadi has has two Oscars. You know, he's won twice before. So how did it rate with other Cannes openers? I think it's, this is true of a lot of film festivals where the opening night film, it seems like, wow, what a what a, what a a coup to get that. But a lot of times it's an off movie. It's not something that they're really hoping to showcase. But I think this year, 
here at Cannes because, like I said, it's not the starriest lineup. Um, to kick things off with a film from a director who has you know, been at Cannes before, who's won two Oscars, with two huge international movie stars, I think that was definitely deliberate. So it had a bit more buzz going into it. But something that I said in my review that is up on the site now is that I think that weight kind of hinders the film. I think that we all went in with this big expectations. And while the film is, is by no means bad, it's interesting. It's uh, you know it's pretty high melodrama. I don't know that any movie really could have lived up to the combination of two Oscar-winning actors, Oscar-winning director, first night of Cannes, and a kind of uncertain year. You know, I don't know if any movie, not even Carol, could have probably overcome that. Do you that. think we should be looking for it Oscar-wise? Like Oscar for Heidi has such a track record that I'm sure whoever's distributing it uh, is going to try that. Yes, so Focus Features just picked it up today uh, as we're recording. So we'll see how they decide to handle it. I think that one thing that his past films, The Salesman and A Separation, uh, had going for them in terms of the Oscar race was that, you know, it was sort of something of a novelty to have Iranian films in the Oscar hunt and films that dealt with particular realities of the class system in Iran and um, various other mechanisms that, you know, are probably in some sense universal to the world, but I think that added particularness helped. And I don't know that a sort of drama about somewhat wealthy people said, well, not that, actually they're not wealthy. I shouldn't say that, but middle-class people in Spain, I feel like that's more familiar to an Oscar voter. And so the movie might not stand out. But people may not realize when when they're listening to this, that it was the same day that Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. Did that come up at all? Had that happened yet when the screening happened? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the exact timing of it was. But no, I think the the conversation was really not about Farhadi's sort of, you know, country of origin or anything like that. It was really more about like what his filmmaking looks like in a new context and with these right. two big movie stars. I mean, these are arguably the most famous people he's worked with. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was more of the focus than than the politics of it, which, you know, for a festival like Cannes, it's kind of rare that you can say that. Usually the politics come rushing right in. Yeah, you're making Cannes sound like this amazing place where you don't think about Donald Trump for a full two weeks. But I, I feel like there's no way that's going to last. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I saw another movie today or called Rafiki, which is a movie from Kenya uh, that's banned in Kenya because it's the subject matter um, involves two teenage girls who, who fall in love. Uh, and so the Kenyan government has banned it for promoting homosexuality. And the director is named Wanuri Kahihu, uh, and she's here with uh, her castmates and producers. And, you know, I was waiting in line for that. And I was thinking about, well, we're going to see this movie that's banned in the country. So we don't agree with the country's politics on this, but we agree with the filmmakers. And I think that that's a lot of what the kind of can not compromise exactly, but the sort of you have to extend a certain humanity. You know, I got an invitation to the Russian, you know, film pavilion. They, all these countries have pavilions along the beach, like for their party. And I was like, well, do I want to go to a Russian thing? But like these filmmakers are not Putin and nor is, uh, you know, any nor any of the American filmmakers, certainly not Spike Lee, nor they're not Donald Trump. So we are capable here and film goers everywhere, of separating sort of art from country and country from art. And it's just interesting to see that put into practice here. I mean, that said, politically speaking or globally, you know, global panic speaking, the guys with the big machine guns are back patrolling the quest set. And so we can't forget the world for too long. How was Rafiki? It's good. The main cast members... Samantha Mugatsia and Sheila Muniva, who play the two love interests, they're wonderful, really spirited, really natural. There's some really lovely filmmaking in it. It's a little rough in terms of its narrative. I think that, you know, um, I've seen this version of a coming out and then their parents and community doesn't approve before from different countries. It's interesting seeing it in the context of middle class girls in Nairobi. I haven't seen that before. So for that, the kind of not novelty, but the 
the freshness of it. I liked it. But, you know, I think the filmmaking, it shows that the filmmaker is, is, is new, to the, new to the business, but I'm really excited to see what she and her cast do next. Well, you know, you can tell that I studied your, your preview because I'm going to reference it again, but I, I thought it was very interesting how you put it in, in your preview when you said the international community will be eager to embrace that. And that, that is an interesting way of looking at Can, and you just kind of reference as well, that there's this community of artists coming together from around the world trying to advance in some way certain ideas and norms and um, an opening up of, of things that back home in different countries for various reasons may not be, may not be possible, may in fact be illegal in that case. Yeah, and I think that there's an effort to show to whatever home country is, you know, repressing a film or whatever, that like the international community embraces this and you kind of look retrograde and backwards if you don't then follow suit. I don't know how often that actually works. I also don't know how often here it can, how much of that is sort of self-righteous back padding on the the part of the people going to the movie, you know, how altruistic are we being and how much are we just congratulating ourselves for being the ones who get it in a way the Kenyan government doesn't or whatever. But, you know, I do think that if can has any political power, it's exactly that. It's showing to the world and, and the home country of, you know, a particular movie that there is an audience and that people care about it and that the story can be championed even if the government doesn't approve. With some distance from some of the like starrier uh, English language premieres that are happening next week, I'm just curious right now if you want to plant your flag on like one film you're most like, excited to see next week. I'm very curious, as everyone here you talk to is about Black Klansman, which is the Spike Lee film that premieres next week based on a true story about a black man in Colorado who did infiltrate his local cake KK chapter and become, I believe, it the head of it. And he's played by John David Washington, who is Denzel Washington's son. So that's what I know about the movie. And at the opening ceremony on Tuesday night, they showed little, very short clips of each film. And so I got to see a tiny glimpse of Black Klansman. And it looks interesting. I mean, the, the sort of cinematography, filmmaking style looks interesting. John David Washington, it was a funny scene where he's talking on the phone trying to sound like a white guy. And and so there was a, to- a note of humor in, in what we saw. So uh, I'm really curious to see what Lee has cooked up. Um, the early buzz I've heard from a few people who have seen it or know people who have seen it is really strong in a way that I've not heard for, about a Lee film for a while. So um, yeah, anticipation is definitely high for that one. And I personally am excited about a movie I'm seeing this week. This will be no surprise to you. I'm really excited about the gay movie in competition. <laughs> it's called Sorry Angel. It's a movie by Christophe Honoré, which is who's a French filmmaker. And it's about a writer in his 30s having a love affair with a young man in Paris. Why would I be interested in that? Are you going to Paris after Cannes just by chance? It's a, out of curiosity. Depending on how this movie goes. Uh, no, but I've heard really good things about it. And I th- my hope is that amidst a lot of darkness and heavy you know, Cannes drama, that this will be something that has a little levity to it and a little sexiness you know i think that we need a little of that in france uh you know after all uh, when do we finally get to see uh, our personal friend andrew garfield and under the silver lake that's the one i'm most curious to hear about so that'll be next week. What the meanies at the uh, Cannes scheduling group did is that they put all of the kind of, you know, big American English language stuff all in within two days. Uh, so it's kind of jam-packed um, between uh, next Monday and Tuesday. Uh, so Under the Silver Lake will premiere uh, on Tuesday night. I probably won't see it until the next day. Um, but, but you know, some people, uh, your David Ehrlichs of the world, have already seen it. They saw it in New York or L.A. And I've heard that it's wacky and weird and, and, and long, but like in a good way and so i'm very excited about that it doesn't seem oscary um it's being released in june so i feel like it's kind of in that like i don't know beguiled slot maybe it's got a great trailer the trailer made me excited i wanted to see it 
And then the last question for me scheduling wise is I know that Solo is coming out late as well. I think it's screening in Cannes around the same time it's screening for press here. It's So it's going to be a while too before we start hearing how many French people booed Star Wars, right? Yes, yes. So that'll be a Tuesday night, the 15th. And I believe that reviews will be out by the time I'm out of my screening. So you'll know what the critics in the United States think before we, yeah, what, what we can audiences do. But I have no idea. I've never seen a movie of that size in scope at Cannes before. You know, Mad Max screened here a couple years ago out of competition as Solo is. But I had already seen it in New York, so I didn't go to the screening here. And Mad Max is also... It's not a Star Wars movie. I mean, it's an action film, but it, but it's, it's also an art film in a way. This is like, you know, the um, umpteenth movie in a franchise. So I'll be curious to see how... How, how that plays. Um, I'm just excited to see it as I still somehow remain a Star Wars fan despite being inundated by you know a movie a year now. But I think that probably the most anticipated movie that's screening out of competition is not Solo. It's not even The Man Who killed Don Quixote, or, which is the Terry Gilliam thing, which may or may not screen here, depending on a legal decision. But the, the the third one is the screening out of competition is Lars von Trier's new film, The House That Jack Built. You know, I'm sure some of our listeners are aware that von Trier has a very spotty history with this festival. Uh, when he was here for Melancholia eight years ago, seven years ago, he said something sort of Nazi sympathizing <laughs> at a press conference with poor Kirsten Dunst sitting next to him looking pained. So he has finally been invited back to the festival, not in competition, which I feel like is kind of a censure on on the festival's part. Um, But yeah, it's a movie about a serial killer starring Matt Dillon uh, and Uma Thurman. And, uh, you know, a Lars von Trier movie about a serial killer promises to be, if nothing else, interesting. And extremely bleak, I imagine. Well, why would you say that? (laughs) He's such a cheerful guy. Yeah. Um, But that's the one, you know, anecdotally at little, you know, there's a bar called the Petite Majestic that opens its little alleyway street and everyone kind of gathers there after screenings at night. And so I was there uh, on Tuesday night talking with other film critics and everyone I asked that was the one that kind of came up first or second, either that or Black Klansman. So, and again, that's all jam-packed within two days next week. So I will have my work cut out for me. You just made that bar sound like the most magical place in the world. Like it appears out of nowhere in a French alley and you just go there and drink wine. Uh, yeah, it's pretty great. I was talking with Owen Gleberman, who is the head critic at Variety. And he, you know, he's been at this rodeo many times before and has been coming for on and off for 20 plus years. And and he was last night, he was like, he looked looking around. And he said, you know what? This is pretty magical. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So, yeah, it's pretty good. Well, I'm sorry that you will never be coming back. It's been good to have you uh, in our lives, Richard. But enjoy your new life in France. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think I've got my eye on a couple cute publicists and, you know, I think we're just going to get on the train to Paris and that'll be life. So for the second half of this episode, we're going to be sharing an interview that I did with Justin Simeon, who is the creator and a writer and producer and a general mastermind of the Netflix series Dear White People. It debuted its second season last week. It was a movie, as you might remember before that. Justin used to be a publicist who I worked with very briefly on and off when he was working in the studio, so he's kind of been in all sides of the movie industry. But before we share the interview I did, Joanna, we just kind of wanted to talk about Dear White People season two. It was kind of held in this level of mystery uh, before the season premiered, and I think there are some really nice surprises in it from cameos from people like Lena Waithe to like a very big cameo in the very final scene. But I think we both were discussing how it felt really different, but maybe a leap forward from season one, which we both really liked. Uh, what did you just think about the season two of Dear White People? Yeah, I think season one was caught a little bit in a feedback loop with the film that it's, you know, not even inspired by is a replication of. And so you had some original cast members from the film playing the same parts. And then you had some new cast members, you know, recast in major roles. And so it was just sort of this weird, 
I loved season one, but it was also had that just like weird, bizarro baggage to it. And then season two is just very confidently its own thing, uh, which I really, really loved. This season, season two, is in dialogue with some of the controversy around season one, because I don't know if you recall that when Netflix released season one, there was this whole dumb social media backlash about how Dear White People is racist towards white people uh, from people who clearly hadn't seen the show and were just responding to the name of it and the ad campaign and something like that. And so season two, um, I believe, and maybe you get into this with your interview with Justin, is like him drawing a bit on some of his experience with um, online trolls, knee jerk, right wing responses and stuff like that. And you have our main character, Sam played by the amazing Logan Browning sort of getting embroiled in a Twitter war with a troll. And it's something that a lot of us can relate to, I think in 2017, 2018 of just getting drawn into these really stupid arguments and what that distracts us from and also just how both exhilarating and uh, demoralizing that kind of interaction can be. Yeah, I thought it was interesting the way that the second season kind of opens up the pressure cooker life of college to wider cultural forces, which I think is something that we've seen happen where there's all these debates about free speech on campus and when people bring in speakers and they get banned and kind of a lot of hand-wringing over that. And the first season to me felt like it was very contained within the world of Winchester and there's so much going on there. But in this season you get trolls, you get this uh, right-wing kind of uh, pundit coming in to speak who's played by Tessa Thompson, who played uh, Sam in the original movie, which is incredible casting. Um, and it, it made sense to me that like the way that we spent a lot of time debating over college campuses would be reflected on the show. But I also thought it was interesting, and I talked to Justin about this in the interview, that the first season wrapped like on election day 2016 or sometime very close to it. And so they, when they come in for the second season, there were, it's it coming into a really different world, but they do not name Donald Trump once, which I think is very much in the show's favor. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's very interesting because it does exist in this different post Trump world, but it's not so actively engaging in Trump, which is refreshing because I want, I want to have these stories. I want to have these reactions, but I don't want to it to just get bogged down in that other thing. You know, I want these people's experience, and I want to live in them. Um, and and season two, I think more than season one, though I could be wrong. I haven't rewatched season one recently. Plays around with time a bit more in in. I will admit occasionally disorienting ways, but mostly kind of fun and challenging ways. It certainly like rewards binging. And then there's also this mystery that is laced throughout that I kind of feel like is the opposite of uh, what you look for in a binge show because it's exactly the kind of thing that would drive Reddit into a like joyous frenzy if this were a week-to-week show. What is that symbol? You know, there's this like secret societies plot line and each episode has like a little clue about it and maybe some like hidden symbols that you didn't see or didn't notice and and it's just exactly the kind of thing that Reddit would eat up and not that uh, we should think about all shows in the way in which they interact with Reddit but like there is certainly like in this dumb internet age that we all live in there is certainly a currency that certain shows court i'm thinking of like westworld or mr robot or even true detective uh that you know the 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 reddit or whatever kind of online detective frenzy uh can boost numbers on a show get eyes on a show and so i was interested to see it i'm not saying that justin was courting that i think he was just having like a really good time but it's interesting to see it on a show that's a binge show so it's not it can't exist in this like 
like, what do we think this means sort of week to week space. So I, I don't know. I just found it fascinating to find that kind of mystery without any of the noise around it. I wouldn't be surprised if Reddit gets into it now, though, because the season ends on something of a cliffhanger, which I guess we don't really have to spoil. Hopefully people are starting to catch up with it. Um, But it gives you a lot to think about between now and the third season, which I believe it's been renewed for a third season already, or at least I I assume that it will be at the very least. Um, So I can imagine people like kind of going and being like, what's going to happen on season three of Dear White People, which is a really fun thing to imagine. Yeah. And I also think that um, because we're more familiar with the characters, it allowed the show to open up outside of Sam and Troy and Lionel, like some of the main things you get, you get like someone like the character, like Joelle played by Ashley Blaine Featherston, who's so good um, in the season. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine who hadn't seen the screeners yet. And she was like, I just really wanted more Joelle in the first season. I was like, Oh my friend, yeah. you're going to get exactly what you wish wanted. granted. So, you know, it's just, I, I did an interview with Logan Browdy a couple weeks ago about season two. And, you know, she was talking about, you know, when I talked to her, it was right after Beyonce had done her performance at uh, Coachella, which was all about like HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and sort of like boosting this idea of black excellence and all of that. And and what Logan Browning was saying is that between season one and season two, not only do we have a different president, but also Get Out and Black Panther have happened. And so what that means for this idea of black excellence and what it even means for the way that Netflix wants to market a show like this. I think in season one, she was saying Netflix was interested in really trying to hook the white audience into dear white people, whether through outrage or whatever in season two, the marketing and you know, this might be too much inside baseball, but the marketing she felt according to her felt more just sort of like a show about us by us. And that it was, that's even just a year later, that's a safer thing that Netflix feels like they can market. Uh, whereas maybe before they felt like they couldn't, you know, and that there are eyeballs and money there, which we all, all like, we all knew that already, but that Hollywood is, is feeling firmer on that position. So, yeah, it does feel like there's just like, as a, as a white consumer of culture, there is a lot more culture coming at me with that framing, which I, I mean, you know, it's when you're white, you're used to having everything aimed at you is cause you're seen as like the default audience. So it is a really interesting way to approach something where you're like, okay, this isn't by me or for me. And how am I going to uh, get into it from there? And I think dear white people deals with that really explicitly in a lot of its characters, which is part of what makes it such a fascinating show to talk about. I mean, the episode I wanted to like, without going into too much detail for people who haven't seen it, but there's an episode, I think it's episode eight where you see Sam and her uh, ex-boyfriend Gabe have this kind of, and, and many times it's like a single take going through this entire argument in a contained space. It's a bottle episode, like a classic TV episode where the characters want space. It's usually done to save money. And here it was obviously done for really different reasons. And I thought it was such an interesting way to deal with like the like white conversation, black conversation aspect of the show. Did it grab you as much as it grabbed me? Joanna? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I talked to Logan about that too. Like the character of Gabe exists as this exploration of, a well-meaning, we like him. He's a well-meaning sort of earnest white ally, but he makes these major missteps that he is completely blind to. And the journey that he goes on this episode is, is pretty incredible. And some, I was, I was asking her, I was asking Logan about what do you feel about like white people like me saying, Oh my God, I love dear white people so much. Like, is that, (laughs) is that a weird or off putting thing to say? She's like, no, I welcome everyone on the bandwagon. Like I want everyone to see the show. Obviously she was like, there are occasionally like allies, 
sometimes not just in sort of black and white communities, but sort of gay straight or whatever, where you feel like people are bandwagoning a bit. She's like, and yeah, there's certainly times when I give side eye, but she's like, but generally like if people are just into the show, I'm excited they're into the show. So all people should watch Dear White People is what basically what we're saying. It is, it's super bingeable. And I think we get into talking about like the issues that it brings up and all the politics, but it's really funny. Like one of my favorite episodes, I think, and it ends in a, in a kind of a darker way, but the Coco centric episode, cause she's such a funny character. Her roommates are really funny character. Like it's a, these kids are so likable. I like spending time with them. Yeah. All of them. There's not like a single character, you know, cause he, almost every episode I think, yeah, is told specifically from a point of view of a single character. They, they make that clear uh, as they did in season one, where you have the character sort of in silhouette with the title card. And then each, I think every single episode ends with a direct look to the camera from that character, Yeah, uh, which is, which yeah. is stunning, but there's not a single character in that show where I'm like, Oh, a Coco episode. I don't want it. I want all of it. Like it's all every character yeah. I'm excited to be with. There's also an amazing running gag with a tiny dog named Sorbet. So if that doesn't sell you on the show, I'm not really sure what will. So good. I want a Sorbet episode next Yes. Season. Oh, my God. A sor- oh, You've seen a lot. A Sorbet direct look to the camera. <laughs> <laughs> sorbet has seen some shit. This season was a big one for Sorbet. Um, okay, let's go ahead and share the conversation I have with Justin Simeon, where we talked about a lot of this stuff, a lot about his reaction to the trolls who kind of came after his show, about how he got his friend Lena Waith on the show. It was a really fun conversation. So watch Dear White People Season 2, binge it, and then uh, listen to our conversation. So I want to welcome Justin Simeon, the creator and filmmaker behind Dear White People, which has already premiered on Netflix for its second season as we speak. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you so much for having me. So season one, I believe, wrapped the day of the 2016 election or or right around then. When you started to break the story for season two, what was going on in the world? Like, what was the context in which you guys were figuring out where you were going to head with this? Well, immediately after, um, you know, because the movie had already happened. But then for whatever reason, when the teaser trailer for the show dropped, there was this huge kind of like alt-right response Mm -hmm. and I was confused by it because we had already been a movie already and sort of (laughs) it's out there for you to be offended by if you want to be but also people had seen the movie and already had talked about like en masse how it's not anti-white or it's not all these things and so I was surprised by it and and I really when I'm surprised by something or angered by something I tend to lean into it and I really sort of did a deep dive into troll culture and sort of went anonymously into these spaces and, and found the message boards where they're like organizing to take us down or take Black Panther down or whatever. And I realized that outrage in this country is is actually becoming weaponized. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, our sort of misunderstanding of our past as Americans, our sort of not totally understanding how we got here in terms of racism is being manipulated by these people who just wants everyone upset with each other. And so that really was the impetus for season two. It's like, how does misinformation, fake news, if you will, is Mm -hmm. the, the current day way of saying it, how does that affect us in our personal lives? and as a nation. And so, you know, this season is kind of obsessed with the past and Mm -hmm. obsessed with individual histories and secrets that, you know, we've kept from each other. And really a lot of that came out of that just response to the first season. Was it hard for you to keep Donald Trump pretty much out of this? I don't remember if his name is said, but it's It's not not as much of a response to, you know, quote unquote, Trump's America as Mm -hmm. maybe I would have thought, because so much of college activism is is in reaction to that. But this show exists in its own place, really. Yeah. And I didn't want to just perpetually be in reaction. I think part of why it's called Dear White People is because it's expressing the kind of conundrum of being a black person in a sort of white dominated culture where you're always having to dear white people. You're Mm -hmm. always having to 
defend yourself or explain yourself. And that actually is kind of another form of oppression. It's another like way of us being trapped in the so-called white gaze. So I didn't want to be a reaction. And, and sort of the rule in the writer's room was like, unless we have something new to say about Donald Trump or something that can add to the conversation or twist it in some way, I, why mention his name? Like he's literally gotten more mentions than I think he deserves. I mean, that's sort of why he's where he is. So, you know, these underlying issues that have led to his presidency and have led to the tumult from his presidency, these are American issues that were here before Donald Trump and will be here after. And and so it was just a concerted effort to let's talk about what's really happening as opposed to the easy joke of the moment. Does it feel like a different story to you? I mean, the movie was made right in the middle of the Obama presidency, mm-hmm. like the show was made right at the end. But does it feel like it's it's talking to a different white people or a different country than it was during when Obama was president? I think so. I think the movie really came out of a time where it was almost taboo as a black person to even acknowledge racism yeah. because everyone was so convinced that we had finally gotten past it that even among liberal circles, it was really awkward to talk about, you know, I'm actually having a different experience than you are right now. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of the environment in which the movie came out and the show came out in an environment where black activism had sort of reached the zeitgeist again. And now the sort of backlash to black activism and the sort of weaponization of misinformation and troll culture and bot culture, that's sort of the America that we're speaking to. But the thing is, is that at the end of the day, this show really is about you know, sort of reconciling the difference between the characters that we always have to play to get along in American society and who we might really be if it wasn't for the system that we're all cut up in. And that is a human condition thing. I'm talking about that through a black lens, but ultimately the show, I want to make it universal and timeless. It just happens to be through a present day lens. I think the only ways in which that sort of changed the way I've told the story is that there's a sense of urgency, I think, to this season Mm. that I didn't necessarily feel with the film. There's a sense of like, guys, we really have to dig deeper and figure out how we got here. And we kind of need to do it now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to spoil too much because presumably some people will listen to this and watch the show after. But yeah. I think one of the things you are now allowed to talk about is that Lena Waithe is in this episode yes. or in this season, really. Yes, I think she shows up in the first episode. Yeah. Uh, and you guys go way back. She was a producer on the Dear White People movie. But uh-huh. just tell me about how, obviously, you're friends. But when were you like, OK, here, you're going to be on the show and actually here's who you're going to be, which is pretty wild. Well, it really started with the movie because yeah. back in the day, OK, everybody <laughs> who knew Lena was like, OK, you're going to be a star. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, you're a writer. Yes, you're a producer. But obviously, people are going to discover you and you're going to be a thing. Like yeah. We all would say that to her. And when we were filming the movie, I kept trying to give her lines. <laughs> I kept trying to get her in the movie. And she's like, no, I'm a writer. Is that a SAG violation? I, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Taft Hartley, like we can make it work. But like, it was literally like, I was trying to get her to be more in it. You see her back at it briefly. And she was like, no, 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 I'm a writer. And so when it she was discovered and ended up being on Master of None, I was fake mad at her because I was like, you, you gave it to Aziz and not your best friend. And so, you know, by the time the second season came around, she was just like, sucker, I got to be on the show. And I'm like, I know. When are you, when between the Spielberg movie and AT&T and the Jordan commercial, are you available? And so we talked about a few different scenarios, but it came down to like, what can we shoot with Lena with the time that she's available? But that's also meaningful and not just sort of a throwaway cameo. And so she plays this character that really has a legitimate arc that mirrors what's happening with the students and with the kids. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, Lena's hilarious. So it was all about having fun and giving her a space to be Lena. And yeah. because she's my bestie and we know each other well, we were just able to work that out. And I'm really glad we did because I think she's so fun in the, in the show. Yeah, the part where she she makes a cameo as herself on another <laughs> show within a show, there's so many layers to it. But she's is. doing this really bad acting <laughs> as her character. She's, I mean, everyone knows she's hilarious, but yeah. there really are just like layers upon layers yeah. to it. And she's, you know, Lena, you haven't even begun to scratch the surface of how brilliant this woman is. Like, <laughs> you know, um, and, and so, again, it was just us having fun and doing the kind of things we've always been doing in our writers' rooms together. And, you know, those jokes that we trade back and forth, we got to translate it into the show. I mean, yeah. how fun is that? Yeah. And then the other big cameo that, again, I don't want to spoil too much, but Tessa Thompson does mm-hmm. show back up. I mean, that felt inevitable. Like, yeah. she was going to have to make a cameo. And the, the character you choose for her is really specific. But, yeah. You know, I mean, her schedule's hard, too. Is that just about finding time? Well, you know what it is? Is, is like when we made the show, originally it was supposed to be the original cast, but then, you know, it took a while to get the show off the air and everyone sort of went their separate ways, signed different deals, but love has never been lost. There's yeah. always been a lot of mutual respect between the different casts and between each other. One, I just think the world of Tessa, I think she's such a great actor and we've just wanted to play together again. Yeah. And, you know, we came up with, the a, one, I wanted to give her something that wasn't just like a version of Sam. I wanted to give her something to play that was different and awkward and made you feel some type of way and you know we came up with this character who sort of is a black woman but she has become a kind of spokesperson the sort of model minority spokesperson for the alt-right uh this is before i knew who candace owens was mind you (laughs) i'm glad we could talk about it now i wasn't able to say it before the show came out i think there's a moment between her and logan that has been sort of playing in my mind for some time now and i i just i think it gives me chills that we were able to actually pull that together and have sam the character of Sam literally face her alter ego, you know, the sort of ghost Mm -hmm. of Christmas future. And I just think the two of them are just beasts of actors. So to put them in a room together was magic. Well, because you really do feel like the whole season's building up to that point. And it kind of is, and it's kind of not. It's Mm -hmm. it's also about other things. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's a multi-protagonist show. I think people talk about Sam as the lead, but then there are people who are like, Coco's the one I follow, or (laughs) Lionel's the one I follow. They all have these different threads. But again, this season, the thing that unifies it is everyone has secrets. Everyone has things that they're hiding from themselves or that's being hidden from them, much like we as a country are dealing with. And they are all sort of on this individual journey to discover what's real. And in that moment when Logan's character, Sam, comes up against Tessa, there's a bunch of things that, that Sam, played by Logan, doesn't realize. And she's hit with the truth of this woman's relationship with the media that I think makes her really uncomfortable and and shows her that life isn't black and white. It's actually quite gray. It's a kind of truth that I think we need to talk about in this era where we want to fight these mass injustices, but we always want to talk about it in a very binary way. And that doesn't really do us any favors, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, that also is a big part of what the episode that I would say is closest to episode five last Mm -hmm. season is I think it's the seventh episode with Mm. her and Gabe in the radio station, which you directed, which is it's really because it just breaks the format. It's a totally different structure from the other episodes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's interesting in how it's made but also the fact that they're both really right in this argument and yes. they're both wrong and there's no resolution for it and right. I think you sense that the show wants you to side with Sam a lot in that episode and she makes these you know points about Gabe and as a white person in this mm-hmm, world mm-hmm. but it tries really hard to side with him too yeah. and I feel like that's another part of the clapback culture you're talking about where we yes. want there to be someone who's right on Twitter and who's wrong but exactly. that one seemed to really prove that nobody's actually going to have the answer. Well that episode to me was such a joy to direct it was a challenge we decided 
decided early on, let's embrace this idea of a bottle episode and yeah. not only just do it in the sets that we have, but let's do it in one room and really treat it like 12 Angry Men or like, you know, these great films that sort of just all take place in one space. And as a filmmaker who sort of, I think people have sort of put me in a box of kind of being a showy filmmaker and sort of like, you know, it's all it's it's a little bit about the set design and the set pieces. It was such a fun challenge to direct a scene that was all about the performances. And really that conversation that Sam and Gabe are having is the conversation that I feel like we were all struggling to have because we're so conditioned to be against each other that really at the end of the day, it's actually human nature to cooperate and mm-hmm. work together and sort of get past our differences. But we're set up in the system that has us at each other's throats. And I, I wanted to say that without saying it. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just wanted you to feel as you're sort of bouncing between the arguments like, oh, my God, they're both right and they're both wrong. And just get over it and make out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because I, I, in a lot of ways, like that is where we are. It's, yeah. we're, we're so busy. And again, I'm not talking crap about Black Lives Matter or like, you know, these organizations that are protesting because I think that is necessary as well. But on the other side, we are so as America as a whole, we are so invested in being right that we forget to listen. Yeah. And we forget to sort of hear what the other person is meaning. And we get caught up in how they said it. And we're just in this tit for tat era that frankly is not moving the needle. It's sort Mm -hmm. of it's increasing the divide. And that's not black people's fault, okay? That's the way we're set up to talk about these things, <laughs> down to the language of black and white. Race is a total social construct, but the only way we can talk about it is within the language that we were given from, okay, we're about to go here on this podcast, <laughs> the language that we adopted from the abolition of slavery, yeah. white and black and all this stuff. That didn't exist, mm-hmm. okay, before there was an economic reason to separate the races. Yeah. And we're stuck talking about it in that context, and we don't even realize it, yeah. you know? So I just wanted to show like how these people, I think we, as we're watching that episode, feel what we want to happen between them. Yeah. And it forces us to see all those little stupid things that are dividing them. And yes, she's right. And yes, he's right. But right now that doesn't matter because they're not hearing each other. And, and hopefully that comes through. Yeah. It was such a thrill to, to make that episode. It made me think about things that happened around, like, I feel like it happened around Black Panther a lot, where mm-hmm. it was like, here's how white people are allowed to enjoy it. And here's how black people are allowed to enjoy yes. it. And like, there would be people who were like, as a white person, I don't think I should go to opening week in Black Panther. And it's like, you guys are really it's, going over the deep end on yes. this. And, and we get so tangled up, like we don't even know how to talk about. It. And as and as a liberal, like we we are, it's human nature. Okay, yeah. like we do it on both sides of the ideological spectrum. You know, I'm the kind of person who, like, if you talk to me about something like cultural appropriation and what white people are allowed to do and not do, I, I don't really have much to say about it. It's <laughs> like culture is appropriatable. It, like that is how culture has always worked. The problem, the real problem, we should be talking about is why is it that one group of people is celebrated for something that another group of people is demonized for you know the perfect example is cannabis okay like just a generation ago black men were being stripped from their families and sent to prison for selling pot whereas right now it is the coolest most hippest booming industry for white people to get into it's not that white people appropriated (laughs) cannabis you know it's just that we live in a world where one group is demonized and one group is celebrated and that's the real issue so when you get into what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to react I kind of zone out on that stuff because mm. to me that's not what it's about what it's about is are the underlying issues and and frankly white people going to see black panther is a great wonderful <laughs> thing that happened we literally everyone saw black panther yeah it, it's it, but it's huge it's like finally you know 
white people get to experience what black people have experienced their whole lives, which is you get to see yourself in characters that don't look like you. <laughs> and, it, and it's not that bad. Women, too. You <laughs> Women, know, too. Always, like, looking for someone to look up to. You know to. what I'm saying? Like, it's just not that bad, guys. It's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about where you came from just going way back, because you were yeah. a publicist mm-hmm. uh, way back in the day at Paramount, at least. I knew you from getting Comic-Con tickets at yeah. Paramount. Um, I'm just, because now you have gone so fully over into the filmmaker side of things, mm-hmm. but I'm just so curious about what perspective that gave you. I mean, obviously, it's a good way to meet a lot of people in the industry, but like, yeah. what did you learn from being on the literal other side of the camera? I mean, what I really learned is how to tell the story around the story. Because here's the thing. Everything I make, probably for the rest of my life, is going to have some nuance to it. It's going to have some twist to it. It's going to have some hard sell to it. Because mm-hmm. the things that I want to talk about as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, are a bit complicated. And my first job was at Focus Features, and it was around the Brokeback Mountain era. And I was just so in awe. And I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. I've known I wanted to make movies since I was a little boy. But publicity was my in. Mm-hmm. I was good at it, and that's where I got my first job. I was enamored with how they took this literally a small gay cowboy movie, of which it wasn't even the first small gay cowboy movie, mm-hmm. and turned it into a cultural phenomenon. And I was fascinated by how you position something that a culture is set up to not accept into something that is a phenomenon. And dear white people, the journey began with me making, with my little tax refund, a concept trailer and putting it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And the publicity from that concept trailer is how I got the movie made and how I got it financed. So I wouldn't have learned any of those things had I not been, you know, on that other side of the curtain, you know. I had the pleasure of working with Adrian Bowles at Focus Features and see them launch really small movies to the masses. I was was a part of the Paranormal Activity campaign at Paramount. So, like, I really... That was, like, all publicity. Yeah. I, like, really got to, you know, under Amy Powell, I was, like, I really got to cut my teeth in a field of like how do we break these little movies that people aren't going to just get automatically and I think that helped me figure out how to wiggle my way into the culture with this very specific set of characters and a story that frankly when we made the movie nobody was checking for it Mm -hmm. there wasn't Atlanta on TV and Insecure and my show like there was nothing like it and you know it was because of my experience in publicity and marketing uh, you know that I was able to sort of figure out how to do that navigate that so we're an awards season and focus show. I mm-hmm. mean, and like obviously Brokeback Mountain is such an example of that publicity with awards. Yeah. You feel like it gives you an appreciation for, you know, it's like a dog and pony show. And like a lot of filmmakers get really it anxious is. about it. But it seems like you recognize that it's also part of getting your movie made. I mean, look, it is a game and it's a it's a bit of a popularity contest. <laughs> but at the same time, it's a game that's worth playing because a lot of shows are streaming right now. There's a lot of things. And I think that my show has something to say about the culture and has something to offer the culture that is unique. And so it's important for me that if that means I got to, you know, grind to try to get a nomination here and there, (laughs) that's what I'm going to do because ultimately my goal is not just to have a show on the air. That's not why I'm a storyteller. My goal is to have a cultural conversation and to really introduce ideas into the culture that are often overlooked because they're inconvenient. That's Mm -hmm. really, truly why I get up every day to write and tell stories. And so I don't think I'm caught up in the system. I I don't feel like a hit to my ego if we don't get nominated for things. But I'm going to try to do my best to get, frankly, a conversation that's really hard for a lot of Americans to have 
in the zeitgeist so that we're not so triggered and threatened when a black person says something like, dear white people, mm-hmm. and we're able to, to listen and actually have a dialogue because that really is what this show is. It's a dialogue. It's not, a, it's not an argument. <laughs> yeah. Well, it feels like, I mean, among the many lessons from Get Out, and I know you've talked about how making horror now, there's a path in that because of the success of Get Out is everyone wants to put their money into low-budget horror, but mm-hmm. Get Out introduced these ideas in this horror movie that people all of a sudden were talking about the sunken place. Like, that yes. was a meme, and it's crazy because, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's in Dear White People, mm-hmm. and that's in so many movies, but you get one way to get it out there, and then everyone's talking about well, it. Well, that's what it is. It's like, you know, when I saw Get Out or when I saw Moonlight, and hopefully when people see Dear White People, you're like, oh, my God, that's what I've been feeling, but it's never been put that way before. <laughs> that's the power of stories. It gives you language to talk about things that you didn't have language for before. Like when we all heard the phrase, the sunken place, everyone understands what that means, yeah. but we didn't have a phrase for it before. You know what I'm saying? Like we didn't know what to call Omarosa. <laughs> we didn't know <laughs> what to say about, you know, uh, Stacey Dash or whatever. <laughs> These people who we, frankly, black folks, we want to love them and we want to make sure they're okay, but we're confused as to what has happened. <laughs> and now we have this phrase, sunken place. Yeah. And it's so easy and everyone knows what we're talking about. And frankly, it's what, you know, white folks have, and it's particularly white men, have gotten from stories in American culture All this is, is language, is a, a, is a way to articulate their experiences. And I'm just so glad that I, I was allowed in the door to sort of give phrases and, and ways for, for people to express, you know, other experiences in America. Are you seeing the impact of you telling those stories and Lena Waithe and Issa Rae, like in the people who are coming to apply to me on your show? Like, are, are there people who are empowered in a way that they might not have been five years ago before the Dear White People movie was out? I think out, so. That, that think that their stories are going to be told now. I think so. And listen, I'm not going to take credit for it, but I do know that before Dear White People, there wasn't anything like Dear White People. Yeah. And now there's a few things that are quirky and weird and specific and unique that people of all races are loving and enjoying. Now, that is not because of me, but I, I'm happy to say that I, I feel like I'm at least a part of this yeah. this movement. It is exciting because in generations before mine, a person like me and Issa and Donald Glover and Lena would all be pitted against each other mm-hmm. because we'd have the one black show yeah. on that one network. And now we live in a, in a streaming world where shows can overlap and we are an actual community. Like we actually get together and so support each other's work and root each other, cheer each other on. And it's beautiful because we're not in this crabs in a barrel mindset. We support each other. And that's how we are coming up. It's like, you know, you look back at Martin Scorsese and Spielberg and Lucas and De Palma all hanging out. This is finally we get a chance to do that without having to feel threatened by each other's work. To me, that is the really exciting part is that I can have Barry Jenkins come over to a table read that I'm having and not in any way, shape or form feel threatened by that. And Mm -hmm. I don't know that back in the day when it was like one black filmmaker a year yeah. or one woman filmmaker or one any non-white filmmaker <laughs> and by the way we're still there to yeah. a degree but it's a little bit different I'm just really happy that that's the moment I'm a part of yeah you're planning on making a feature next I believe yes. right? because it feels like TV has caught up in a way that films have not quite gotten there right. I think Ava DuVernay is an example of how she's the one and she mm-hmm. gets a chance to make Wrinkle in Time and we'll yes. see who else gets to go but <laughs> you go, you can go back into feature filmmaking and keep pushing that yeah. boundary there too yeah well I think you know because I was able there White People was my first film. Um, I'm in a position where I do get to do things that are a little weird and quirky because that's already what I started doing. Yeah. The next movie I'm making, it's called Bad Hair. It's a horror satire, and thank God Get Out came out so we could find a financially <laughs> viable reason to make it. But it's about, you know, uh, hair culture and what it means to sort of be a black woman that is sort of caught up in this European standard of beauty and what are the choices that you make. But we do it with horror and comedy and a possessed weave. It's fine. Um, <laughs> 
And uh, so I don't. I would have never gotten to make that movie if Dear White People wasn't my first movie. And if we weren't having this moment right yeah. now where something like Get Out can happen. Because when I saw that movie, I was like, I cannot believe he is getting <laughs> away with saying these things. This is amazing. I feel very lucky. But I also understand that luck is opportunity meets work, hard work. And so... I've been grinding for a long time, and I just want to be ready for the doors to open because I got a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> Do you ever let yourself worry about this moment passing? Because, you know, there's nothing that white men love more than just, like, grab the power back. We did it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, move on. Exactly. You had your time. Well, you know what it is? I'm worried less, oddly enough, since Trump won than I was before. Hmm. And the reason is is because so many of us now have tasted the freedom of not having to be a crab in a barrel, of getting to make my thing and support your thing, that we're just not not gonna go back yeah. like we're 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 not gonna accept that audiences won't accept that i mean you can't you can no longer release a whitewashed movie or like you know a black story that it's completely written and directed by white people without people feeling like wait a minute yeah yeah, yeah. Because now we've tasted what it feels like to have our stories begin to bubble up into the culture. We've tasted what it feels like to be represented by people who understand what we're going through. We're just not going to accept the alternative as yeah. quite as readily, you know? And so I have some hope about that. And I, and I think, you know, culture is a pendulum. It goes back and forth. But I do think we're moving forward. I do think that, like, this moment where, like, anybody black with an idea, like, that is going to pass. You know what I'm saying? Like, it is going to go back and forth like it always does does. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I've been able to start my career in this way, you know, I do feel like if I keep working hard and I keep sort of not being an insane person, despite this industry. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not easy. You know, that I, I will always at least have an opportunity to tell a kind of story. If I'm reduced to telling iPhone stories on YouTube, I'm still a storyteller. We may all be telling iPhone stories It's on true. YouTube. That might be the thing that we all have to do in the future. <laughs> We're into VR headsets. But it's like, I'm not going back. Like, I'm yeah. not, not going to tell stories now. Like, y'all already gave me a taste. <laughs> so, you know, for me, there's a degree of it that I just won't ever let go of. So I'm less worried. I, I, the, the backlash and the sort of purposeful misunderstanding of the work does concern me. You know, I read this article on some alt-right blog that they watched just enough of the show to sort of make these talking points for people who hadn't seen the show mm. to sort of claim that the show was racist. Wow. And that kind of stuff does worry me because there's a lot of people who don't know why they're doing that. There's a lot of people who just sort of drink the Kool-Aid and think that there actually is this show on Netflix that is anti-white and is sort of like, you know, demonizing white. There's people who think that because some article told them that yeah. and they never bothered to watch the show. That does worry me. I, I do think we have an education gap in this country that needs to be addressed. Yeah. But that's that's my big thing is like, as artists, we can try to make the best art we can, but at a certain point, audiences have to be conditioned to receive that art. And I do worry that there are people who have a vested interest in keeping people kind of dumb and keeping people uninformed, and, and that does worry me. Yeah, oh man. Um, okay, last Bummer. question. This might be a better note to end on. Uh, when Let's do you, talk about Lena again. Let's lighten things literally up. Literally just want to say, when are you and Lena going to make something together again? Well, we, uh, oh gosh, I don't know if it's You probably can't announced. reveal anything. But. We, we have something, I don't think it's been announced, but we have something that we're going to do together very, very, very soon. Nice. In the TV landscape, and I'm very excited about it. And um, frankly, Lee and I are always working together. I mean, we always were reading each other's, even when we're not 
there physically on camera in the credits, please know that we have always <laughs> run everything by it's each a other. It's mind operation. Yeah, we're dust from the same star besties. It's just it's just what we do, you know. And uh, but yeah, there there is a very specific opportunity that hopefully we can talk about soon that that should be coming up. Yeah, I think she did uh, Death Sex and Money and like talked about you and a couple other friends. She was just yeah. like, we hang out and it's casual time and all we want to do is talk about the industry. And I was like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> like that always <laughs> we tend to talk about the industry. We talk about Michael Jackson a lot. We talk about Whitney Houston a lot. Those are the big topics um <laughs> dead celebrities and yeah. <laughs> the movie industry exactly i mean what what else do you have to talk about I mean, what I else know. do you talk about with your friends except michael jackson <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that's all i talk about <laughs> um all right justin simeon thank you so much for thank joining you so us much thank for you for the new me. season and uh you know we'll just keep spoiling it uh once people have actually watched it yes. there's so much to talk about so much to talk about so much to unpack thank yeah. you so much that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. We've lost Mike and Richard, but you can find all of us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at Little Gold Men, and on our own, I'm at Katie Rich, Mike's at Mike underscore Hogan, Richard's at Rylaws, and Joanna, you're still here. I'm at Joe wrote this. <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and this week's award for the best description of the Vanity Fair team at Cannes goes to me, Katie Rich. You can be both attractive and smart at the same time. 